This is hell. Live from my living room. What's up with that? Uh, yeah, this is hell. Holiday limbo edition. Um, yeah, I'm producer Sebastian. Obviously, I am, and not uh, our generally beloved host, Chuck Mertz. Uh, Chuck is somewhere in Michigan. Um, on the road. Uh, today, we are... Jesus, what are we even going to play today? Um, <laughs> I spent so much time <clears throat> trying to figure out how to do this broadcast from my own home that I have honestly not done the homework and uh, put up what exactly we're going to play today. So that's going to be interesting me trying to figure out what to do now um, while I'm just talking away here, talking about my Christmas. Uh, my Christmas. Yes, I still do celebrate Christmas as a thing. Um, I mean, celebrate. You know, just the way that anybody really celebrates Christmas these days. It's not like I'm, I mean, I am technically a Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic high school. And uh, then I also went to a Catholic university to get my PhD. Um, but it's not like I'm really, you know, um, it's not like I'm really, uh, you know, practicing. Um, or, you know, like even still doing any of the stuff for Christmas that, you know, like practicing Christian still do for Christmas. I mean, we're not really going to church. Um, or even, like, watching a church service on TV or something. Um, we're just hanging out at home. Uh, basically, just watching Christmas movies, opening presents, eating too much, uh, basically anything. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it was kind of fun. We did watch a lot of different kind of Christmas movies here and there. Um, like, my wife has taped this uh, Disney Christmas, like several rounds of Christmas specials. Uh, that well, she has not taped those. Her parents taped those in like circa 1988, 87, something like that. Yeah, so that's always kind of awesome to break that thing out and watch it live from 1987 or whenever. Um. Wow. This is curious. Anyway. Hang on, everybody.
And yes, I did know that I wanted to not go out there because currently it is cold as uh, as F. F in this case being Fahrenheit. <laughs> My phone tells me it is 18 degrees out there and drizzling. My phone is not in Celsius. My phone is on, on Fahrenheit. How the how the hell is it drizzling in this kind of temperature? That's just not that. that yeah, yeah. No, sir. No, thank you, sir. Is what I say to that. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm just broadcasting here from my very living room. Um, if I start to talk to some of somebody else here, it's probably one of our three cats uh, deciding that they want uh, that they also want to be on on air. Because that's one of the one of the things when I'm here alone, when I'm talking to my computer, uh, the cats then usually decide it is uh, it is them that I am talking to. Because it is you know you see nobody else is here. So, uh, so yeah, so when, when nobody else is here and I'm just talking on the phone, if I'm talking to my computer in any capacity, that then usually means that, uh, to the cats, that then usually means that I'm talking to them, obviously. Um, anyway, yeah, so, uh, I have everything, finally, everything set up in the way that it is set up to be, because I'm a real professional here at This Is Hell, um, and because this is hell, and uh, we're not gonna skimp on any traditions just because it's the holidays, <laughs> what is this? Um, so, that's why we, also this, this Boxing Day... Uh, so first of all, coming up, we have, um, an interview with, uh, philosopher and writer Kate Mann, talking about her Substack article, Criminalizing Pregnant People, a brief retrospective, uh, that we played in, uh, in August, if I'm not mistaken. Um, see, this is the, the dumb thing, because... Looking at this, on SoundCloud it tells me that it was five months ago, and I just hate this. This is just such dumb crap. Ah, uh, this recent-ish, I don't know, recent-ish, the last ten years or so, I blame Twitter for that. Where everything online is just displayed as, like, X units of time ago instead of on this day. So we no longer know public publication dates. Everything is just rel relative to the present moment. And yeah, that's not good. Especially when you're like, hey, when did we actually do this? And it's like five months ago. And now you're like, are you expecting me to just like count backwards? Just tell me the date. Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Kate Mann's interview is coming up after uh, me reading this year, Hangover Cure. Um dumb enough to be live, etc, etc, and uh, thinking that you would be, we could be part of your weekly hangover, uh, 
Here is this week's Hangover Cure from listener Wally R. Thank you, Wally. Uh, and he writes, Given that we are knee-deep in the season of traditions, or as I've heard traditions called, peer pressure by dead people, I'm submitting a Hangover Cure that seems fairly traditional and probably hasn't been among the weekly recommendations. While watching a rerun of the classic Andy Griffith show, episode 30 from April 1963, Sheriff Andy Taylor, played by Griffith, prepared a hangover cure for the notorious yet relatively benign town drunk Otis Kempel. Otis was portrayed by a veteran actor and actual teetotaler, teetotaler Hal Smith. There's a word that should make a combat comeback. Teetotaler. Um... The concoction Andy called the Fixer Upper began with a big glass of orange juice to which she added a big splash of A1 sauce, a medium dash of each Worcestershire Worcester sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. And Tabasco, and finished off with a raw egg. A subsequent variation of this remedy in episode 175 from 1966 of the Griffith Show. Deputy Warren Ferguson, played by Jack Burns as a replacement to Don Knotts' Barney Five character, recommended a, quote, morning pick-me-up of sassafras roots, sorghum molasses, a raw egg, a hot so- and hot sauce to set Otis straight. And it turns out raw egg and hot sauce are at the core of what's called the prairie oyster, or prairie cocktail. Apparently a prairie oyster is very different from a Rocky Mountain oyster. Uh, traditional beverage consisting of a raw egg, Worcestershire sauce. Is it Worcestershire sauce or Worcester sauce? Eh, whatever. Vinegar and or hot sauce, table salt, and ground black pepper. Tomato juice is sometimes added, reminiscent of a Bloody Mary. The egg is typically broken into a glass so as to not break the yolk and the mix and the mixture quickly swallowed. The unbroken yolk causes the drink to bear a texture similar to that of an oyster. And this hangover cure and its variants have a long history in popular media. It has been mentioned in literary works by P.G. Woodhouse, George Orwell, and James Bond author Ian Fleming. It has appeared in modern pictures featuring the likes of actors Aubrey Hepburn, Edward G. Robinson, Rock Hudson, Michael J. Fox, Winona Ryder, and other TV series ranging from the 1970s, the Jefferson's to recent Netflix series Russian Doll, and The Good Cup. It's quite popular, it seems. And that makes this week's Hangover Cure a morning pick-me-up or prairie cocktail. That's, that's it for this week's uh, Hangover Cure. Um, and another tradition, at, this is hell that we're not going to go without this week, even though, you know, Chuck's not here, and we're not really doing any kind of live shows, uh, is of course the Quester from Hell. And uh, this week's Quester from Hell is, now that Chuck is away, what is the thing about him that annoys you the most? Again, now that Chuck is away, what is the thing about him that annoys you the most? I'm not gonna say anything about that. Still gotta work here. 
Um, okay, uh, yeah, after the interview, we will have uh, some answers from you, dear listeners, to the question now. Um, yeah, we'll see what else. stocking, which is not a cornucopia, or something, I don't even know, I don't know, no here, does anybody, nobody knows what they're doing, let's be honest, let's keep it a walk, let's keep it a walk, nobody has any goddamn idea what they're doing, at least of all me, your, uh, interim host, Sebastian, and here we go, back to, oh, this was actually July, okay, uh, correction, uh, this interview was actually broadcast first on uh, July 5, this year, 2022, and here's Kate Mann and Chuck talking about reproductive rights, uh, yeah, so, enjoy. This is hell. Overturning Roe v. Wade has sent shockwaves throughout the United States, but those reverberations are felt differently by different people. While those reverberations may affect us differently, they all resonate with male privilege and attempts at social control. Returning to This is Hell, philosopher Kate Mann wrote the article Criminalizing Pregnant People, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. Again, that's Kate, M-A-N-N-E, .substack.com. Welcome back to This is Hell, Kate. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. Your most recent book is 2020's entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, and people can find out more about you at your website, kateman.net, and follow you on Twitter at Kate underscore man. I want to read a little excerpt from your article at Substack to start off. Uh, you write that the Supreme Court's disastrous abortion decision is going to affect many, many women, white, cis, hat, middle-class women like me, like yourself, and our children, very much included, but we are still free from some of the most nightmarish intersections constituted by racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia together with gender. You then quote a past guest on our show, the legal theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, writing in a 1989 paper on this nightmarish intersection, suggesting that we think of a traffic intersection. She wrote, the point is that black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination like traffic through an intersection may flow in one direction and it may flow in another. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. So you also add, similarly, if a black woman is uh, harmed, her injury could result from sex discrimination, race discrimination, or a combination of the two, as in the phenomenon of misogynoir. More broadly, the intersections between gender and other oppressive systems work against pregnant people of color in general and black and indigenous ones, as well as poor folks in particular. It's worth remembering this as some are becoming uh, or bemoaning a return to the pre-Roe era and others fear an even worse future. Both of these views, while capturing something important, also miss another vital fact. To bear in mind here, criminalizing pregnancy has long been a reality for the most marginalized pregnant people in this country. How is overturning Roe 
criminalizing pregnancy generally and how prior to overturning Roe were the most marginalized already criminalized with their pregnancies? Mm, That's a great question. So here I'm relying on some really wonderful work um, on a grim topic by the legal scholars and advocates Lynn Paltrow and Gian Flavin. So what they've done is developed this concept of reproductive oppression, and they're theorizing cases where pregnancy was a necessary condition for someone being physically restricted in their liberty by the legal system, and that can involve things like incarceration, arrests, um, increases in jail and prison time, but also things like being detained in hospital, mental institutions. Trump, during a campaign rally in Wisconsin's paper on this nightmarish intersection, suggesting that we an e.substack.com. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kate. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. Your most recent book is 2020's entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, and people can find out more about you at your website, kateman.net, and follow you on Twitter at Kate underscore man. I want to read a little excerpt from your article at Substack to start off. Uh, You write that the Supreme Court's disastrous abortion decision is going to affect many, many women, white, cis, hat, middle-class women like me, like yourself, and our children, very much included, but we are still free from some of the most nightmarish intersections constituted by racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia together with gender. You then quote a past guest on our show, the legal theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, writing in a 1989 paper on this nightmarish intersection, suggesting that we think of a traffic intersection. She wrote, the point is that black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination like traffic through an intersection may flow in one direction and it may flow in another. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. So you also add, similarly, if a black woman is uh, harmed, her injury could result from sex discrimination, race discrimination, or a combination of the two, as in the phenomenon of misogynoir. More broadly, the intersections between gender and other oppressive systems work against pregnant people of color in general and black and indigenous ones, as well as poor folks in particular. It's worth remembering this as some are becoming uh, are bemoaning a return to the pre-Row era and others fear an even worse future. Both of these views, while capturing something important, also miss another vital fact to bear in mind here. Criminalizing pregnancy has long been a reality for the most marginalized pregnant people in this country. How is overturning Roe criminalizing pregnancy generally? And how prior to overturning Roe were the most marginalized already criminalized with their pregnancies? Mm, That's a great question. So here I'm relying on some really wonderful work um, on a grim topic by the legal scholars and advocates Lynn Paltrow and Gian Flavin. So what they've done is developed this concept of reproductive oppression. And they're theorizing cases where pregnancy was a necessary condition for someone being physically restricted in their liberty by the legal system. And that can involve things like incarceration, arrests, um, increases in jail and prison time, but also things like being detained in hospital, mental institutions, and 
are forced into treatment programs um, as well as forced medical interventions. So what these researchers found was that there is a vastly disproportionate number of women of color, especially black women and indigenous women and poor women who have been subject to this form of reproductive oppression by the state where they are you know, sometimes held captive by the state um, because of their pregnancy and the state's perception that they're not a quote unquote fit mother. Um, so we have cases of people being uh, perceived uh, rightly or in some cases wrongly as a drug user and that being used as a pretext for holding that there is a huge risk to the fetus. In many cases, there wasn't a huge risk. Um, for example, for, for cocaine use that was involved in many of these cases, that's been shown not to be more risky than something that is perfectly legal in pregnancy, namely nicotine use. And yet we have poor and black women being arrested and in some cases incarcerated for years for um, effectively uh, perceptions that they were endangering their fetus during pregnancy. And in reality, in these cases, um, these people had undergone uh, tragedies like uh, a stillbirth for a wanted pregnancy in some cases. Uh, in other cases, they had had a miscarriage. Um, in some cases, an infection that led to miscarriage. And the result of which was a pregnant person being um, incarcerated or at least arrested um, in ways that restrained their physical liberty. So the criminalization of poor and black pregnant bodies has been ongoing in this country for decades and decades. And the paper that you cite is from 2013 by uh, mm -hmm. Paltrow and Flavin. And we all know that from 2013 up until the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there have been uh, more state laws passed, in particular in uh, uh, Mississippi, places like Mississippi, mm -hmm. where there are more and more restrictions had been put on. So do we know were pregnancies being more criminalized during that period of time from the date of this paper in 2013 up until uh, just a few weeks ago when the uh, Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade? Was that criminalization continuing and on a trajectory that was just getting worse and worse for women of color? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, there are two things worth drawing attention to here. So for decades and particularly since that period, since, you know, roughly 2010, I would say there has been a ramping up of restrictions on clinics that perform abortion. So that's one thing worth drawing attention to. Things like um, demanding that clinics have admitting privileges to hospitals, even though that's just not medically necessary. These are known to be incredibly safe procedures. Um, other spurious regulations like requiring that the corridors be a certain width such that you can fit two gurneys side by side in them. Again, not medically or materially necessary restrictions. And so clinics have been shut down using these kinds of pretexts even long before we had the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Casey. Um, the other thing worth really drawing attention to is you've had a rise in the weaponizing of laws against feticide and fetal homicides um, against pregnant women. 
um, and other pregnant persons, including, of course, uh, trans men, non-binary people, and some intersex people who get pregnant. Um, but these laws were originally designed to protect uh, women and their fetuses from domestic and other forms of violence. But what has happened in some states is that they have been repurposed in order to criminalize the pregnant person themselves. Um, so, for example, in Mike Pence's Indiana, you had uh, two uh, Asian American women, uh, Bebe Shual and Pervy Patel, who were both the uh, first arrested women under these uh, fetal homicide laws um, and also happened to be women of color, which is no accident. Um, so in Pervy Patel's case, which was the one to make headlines, um, there was uh, the, the basic chain of events um, was that she had ordered um, pills to self-induce an abortion at 23 or 24 weeks, uh, and um, that is still legal in many states uh, to this day and was certainly protected under Roe v. Wade. Uh, the 24 weeks is considered general uh, the point of viability. Um, so she self-induced an abortion using abortifacients pro uh, procured online um, and was uh, ultimately sentenced via the repurposing of these laws uh, to 20 years in prison. Um, so an extraordinary penalty for this Asian American woman under um, these uh, punitive weaponization of Indiana's feticide laws. So she ended up serving one year and four months and ultimately her appeal to Indiana's Supreme Court was um, successful, but uh, you know, she was uh, still subject to these enormously draconian penalties. And I would argue that her being a woman of color in this scenario was in no way accidental. How do you think we view pregnancy differently when we understand it as something that courts can intervene in, something that where uh, pregnancy has been criminalized? How do you think we view abortion differently when we understand it as something that's already been, uh, that the actual act of being pregnant has been criminalized? Mm. Well, I think it is a pretext for the state to disproportionately target, as I said, poor women, black women, indigenous women, and other women who are marginalized, um, as well as other people who can get pregnant who are marginalized, um, including trans men, for example. Um, but I also think this is a general expression of misogyny. So as you know, in my work, I have been defining misogyny as the um, metaphorically the law enforcement branch of patriarchy. So that which serves to police and enforce patriarchal norms and expectations. And in a way, the most patriarchal norm and expectation, um, which also intersects with racist expectations, with classist and ableist and transphobic expectations, is that cis white women should get pregnant and have white men's babies to uphold white supremacy. Um, and this expectation is now being very effectively enforced and policed by legal means, as well as social means, by not only um, the legal penalties that are going to ensue for pregnant people who obtain abortions in states where they're banned, 
um, but also for those who are um, perceived rightly or wrongly as aiding and abetting this now crime in many states. Um, and it's, it's also just worth noticing the ways in which this um, supports a public discourse that represents a woman's getting pregnant as something morally expected and as kind of natural and even as holy in some religious contexts. So the idea of her then obtaining an abortion is perceived not as her right, as I would argue it absolutely is, but rather as something that violates a kind of natural and moral order. So I think the way that laws are constructing and also reflecting a public discourse that moralizes someone exercising their basic right to terminate a pregnancy and not to have their body used in this way against their will, um, that's also something to which we should be paying attention. So is criminalizing pregnancy then an extension of the criminalization of both race and class, because that brings into the conversation yes. things like capitalism, neoliberalism, and the need uh, the need for the market to have an exploited underclass. So is criminalizing pregnancy an extension of that criminalization of both race and class? Yes, absolutely. I think that's really apt. I mean, one way of looking at it is that a white supremacist, cisnormative, heteropatriarchy of a, you know, deeply capitalist kind needs these women to hold up as cautionary tales and examples to tell white women not to terminate a pregnancy. So we see women like Pervy Patel, whose example I just went into um, in Indiana, being held up as a cautionary tale because she can be in effect uh, exploited, even disposed of by incarcerating her and using her brown pregnant body um, as, yeah, a cautionary tale to white women not to seek an abortion, let alone self-induce an abortion. So, um, yeah, this is a kind of deeply exploitative way of treating the women whose bodies white supremacy doesn't care about, that is poor and um, black and indigenous women, as well as other women of color, um, yeah, as... Uh, ultimately disposable, according to this um, horrific white supremacist as well as misogynistic logic. How aware do you think the public is of pregnancy being criminalized and how it already was disproportionately criminalized for marginalized poor women of color before Roe was overturned? Do you think the issue is just simply a matter of a lack of information to the public or a lack of the ability of the media or politicians to make the public aware of the criminalizing of pregnancy? Well, it's interesting, Chuck. I mean, one reason why I wrote this piece as a white woman is that there's a kind of general perception that after Roe, we were in this golden age, a you know, roughly 50-year period that was interrupted by Dobbs. And I think that's a real misperception um, that we were in a kind of golden age for women's freedoms and that uh, Dobbs represents a straightforward step back to what had been straightforward social progress. Now, of course, uh, Roe was really, really important and uh, I wouldn't at any um, level want to suggest that Dobbs wasn't a massive step back. 
but it's important to be clear about the fact that there were still many people who even when Roe prevailed were in fact subject to criminalization and the enforcement of their pregnancies and also state interventions like, for example, for C-sections. So you saw um, in some of the research uh, that was done by uh, Flavin and Paltrow, the, um, the fact that women whose bodies were subject to this suspicion and uh, who were particularly vulnerable to state intervention were sometimes forced to do things like undergo emergency C-sections for non-emergency situations where, for example, the person wanted to uh, try to deliver vaginally and um, was actually forced to undergo a C-section, which was very likely not medically necessary, given that they then went on to have successful uh, vaginal births following that C-section. Um, and it, yeah, there's just a level of state intrusion and interference into the bodies of certain pregnant people that has been ongoing even since Roe. Um, not via so much the legal system being directly criminalizing pregnant bodies, but through the weaponization of laws that were never intended to have this purpose. Um, so, you know, we had... Uh, laws against, say, uh, child abuse and neglect being repurposed in many of these cases to um, criminalize uh, the bodies, again, of poor and uh, disproportionately women of color when they weren't, um, those laws were never intended to be uh, state oversight into pregnancy, but were used for that purpose by overzealous prosecutors, police officers, judges, and juries. One more question about your writing at kateman.substack.com. You cite Paltrow and Flavin warning, quote, far from being a scare tactic, our findings confirm that if passed, personhood measures not only would provide a basis for recriminalizing abortion, again, this is in 2013, they would also provide grounds for depriving all pregnant women of their liberty. In other words, start to recognize a fetus as a full person under the law, and you are well on your way to criminalizing pregnant people, the most marginalized ones especially. Do you believe that is the next step of the anti-abortion movement, personhood for the unborn? Because that reminds me of the writing of another past guest on our show, on back in 2012. Uh, Jennifer L. Howland, who wrote the book Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. Is that the next step of the anti-abortion movement to give, like corporations have personhood, that mm -hmm. the unborn will be a person? Yes, I think that's absolutely the next step. I mean, we've seen that this has been very, very deliberately engineered, um, this idea of personhood in order to criminalize abortion. It's not that people legally... Um, were convinced that the fetus was a legal person and then decided, oh, you know, this makes trouble for abortion rights. It was very much the opposite with figures like um, an old favorite of ours, Andy Puzder, Trump's pick for Labor secretary, who came up with this idea in Missouri, um, this idea of fetal personhood as a powerful weapon in order to um, criminalize anyone who would seek out their basic moral entitlement to control their own uh, reproductive future. So I think that's one thing that we're going to, to see in many, many states. Um, and along with it, 
it's just worth reflecting on the fact that it is so convenient and you know this has even become a common meme but it is so convenient to advocate for fetal persons because they have no voice uh, certainly no uh, heartbeat at the point at which uh, so-called heartbeat laws kick in at six or eight weeks um, there is a mere pulsating of tissue that will eventually uh, be cardiac tissue that is specializing to be cardiac. So these um, clumps of cells, as I think it's appropriate to say, have no voice, no interests of their own, no sentience until at least week 27, that is the third trimester of pregnancy when very few abortions are performed, um, less than 1%, and those are performed for often dire medical emergencies. Um, and uh, there is this advocacy for a group that, of people that don't exist. And, it, you know, that's great because they won't demand anything. They have no voice to ask for anything and they don't require anything um, until the babies are actually born, a point at which the majority of conservatives show a marked disinterest in things like, you know, even ensuring that there is formula available for those parents who need it to feed their babies, you know, ensuring adequate health care for children, ensuring clean water for children, ensuring that, you know, things like school lunch programs uh, continue, which, you know, has of course been decimated in the States, combating childhood hunger in other ways, ensuring vaccines to protect children. Um, you know, I could go on about the ways in which there are massive contradictions and signs of hypocrisy within the so-called pro-life in reality anti-choice movement. Um, but this is of course familiar territory. But just to emphasize again that the invention of a fetal person allows you to moralize about and criminalize pregnant people who are perceived as neglecting and somehow uh, betraying this person who doesn't exist. My sense of it all is that they're actually much more upset about uh, a perceived neglect and betrayal of cis men in society and that the fetus becomes this convenient entity onto which to project this sense of uh, women's having neglected and betrayed men and not done their duties vis-a-vis -vis the family, the nuclear family. Um, so yeah, we'll see uh, a rise in claims of fetal personhood and uh, that will demand nothing from the advocates for fetal persons and it will have a detrimental effect on the people whose bodies will thus be criminalized and moralized about endlessly, um, providing again, another outlet for the misogyny that we're seeing running rampant in this country. And we'll get to that uh, uh, point that you make in your writing about notional personhood in just a moment. Again, from your uh, Substack writing, as well as from what you were just saying, laws never intended to punish pregnant people were repurposed for that end by overzealous police, prosecutors, judges, and juries. So this brings us to your uh, 2020 book entitled How Male Privilege 
hurts women when you write uh, on May 14th, 2019, 25 white Republicans, all men, voted to pass the most restrictive abortion bill in the United States has seen in decades in the state of Alabama. The bill was signed into law the following day by a white woman, Kate Ivey, Alabama's Republican governor. The law was ultimately blocked in federal court, but if it had gone into effect as planned that November, again, back in 2019, it would have criminalized abortions in the state, banning the procedure in almost every instance, including in cases of rape and incest. And this just brings Mm -hmm. me to the very basic uh, question of how politically effective and popular is criminalizing pregnant women. And to you, what explains the popularity of punitive policies towards pregnancy? Mm, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the issue of white women who have been behind these kinds of bans and punitive laws. I think, you know, part of this is about being perceived as kind of generally tough on quote unquote crime. Um, And part of this is about the kind of enforcement of a normative notion of good womanhood in particular, the idea that good women are the ones who, you know, get pregnant willingly, nurture the fetus unquestioningly at any stage, no matter what their financial and, you know, other features of their material situation, and then raise their children in a selfless and unassisted fashion. Um, And enforcing that legally, I think, has the potential to be popular with groups that are incredibly moralistic about this notion of normative, generally white womanhood in general. We are speaking with Kate Mann, who wrote the article Criminalizing Pregnant People, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. Her most recent book is entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. You can follow Kate on Twitter at Kate underscore Mann. And you can find out more about Kate at her website, kateman.net. You write so-called heartbeat bills, which seek to ban abortion after the point at which cardiac activity in the embryo can be detected, were engineered by one such conservative white woman, as you were uh, describing earlier, Janet Porter. Porter's chief contribution to the anti-abortion movement has been to further moralize abortion by depicting those who would choose to have one as cruel, callous, and unfeeling. What does it say about the debate over reproductive uh, accessibility, uh, reproductive health care accessibility, when both sides see the other as acting cruelly? When punishing, uh, mm-hmm. criminalizing pregnant women and exercising reproductive rights is seen as cruel as though by those who are anti-abortion, what, what is the impact on a debate when both sides see the other as immoral, and cruel. How does that affect that debate? Yeah, well, I think it provides a good opportunity to distract us um, on the left from the very real cruelties that are taking place to actual people, such as the 10-year-old who was the victim of rape in Ohio and is currently carrying her rapist fetus and is going to have to travel to another state in order to get an abortion at 10 years old. Um, I mean, it's just unconscionable cruelty, but in order to kind of compete with that obvious and very real cruelty, conservatives such as um, the aforementioned Janet Porter have effectively invented this notional baby who exists very early in pregnancies, which is, you know, a complete myth. Um, At uh, six to eight weeks, 
the idea that there is a heart uh, or a heartbeat is, you know, it's all completely a misnomer. Um, this is six or eight weeks dating from someone's last menstrual period. At that stage, there's no heart, no brain, no face. There's not even a fetus. Um, an embryo makes that transition at around week nine or 10, as you know. And at six weeks, the embryo is roughly the size of a green pea. Um, now, this so-called heartbeat is actually just a pulsing of cells specializing to become cardiac that may or may not be detectable. Um, and in some pregnancies, that activity won't be uh, detectable until significantly later. But it's meant to tug on the heartstrings. It's meant to make us think and imagine and envision, envision a baby, not a small clump of cells with um, some cells that are specializing to become cardiac, but nothing resembling an organ like the heart and certainly no ability to feel pain, um, no thoughts, no feelings. Uh, I hope it's obvious to say at that stage um, and uh, no good reason absent a very specialized and metaphysically committal package deal not to have a termination, not to have an abortion if you're pregnant and do not wish to be. You quote President Donald Trump during a campaign rally in Wisconsin saying that, quote, the baby is born, the mother meets with the doctor, they take care of the baby, they wrap the baby beautifully, and then the doctor and the mother determine whether or not they will execute the baby. You point out this is an outright lie. Whether it's the fetal heartbeat or the story that Trump told, which you call an outright lie, how dependent is the success of the anti-abortion movement on misleading statements or even fear-mongering? How important are misleading statements and fear to the success of the anti-abortion movement? Yeah, I would say highly. I mean, this kind of thing simply does not happen. What One thing that, you know, just to reiterate, we know is that those people who have abortions during the third trimester are a very, very small minority of those people who seek abortions. Less than 1% of abortions fit into this category. And it's because of conditions that are generally incompatible with the life of the fetus and the person carrying the fetus highly understandably does not wish to have to carry a dead or dying or soon to be stillborn child um, into existence, often with effects that will be incredibly hard on their body, that will ravage their body for no good reason if they carry um, the fetus to term. And rather than seeking the kind of abortion care that is, again, very rarely necessary, but is sometimes necessary um, in the third trimester. But yeah, this image of cruelly uh, aborting or executing babies, it's the kind of thing that is designed to uh, get at people's emotions, to be emotive, and to make people feel like the women doing this are heartless monsters rather than people exercising their moral right, sometimes under heartbreaking circumstances, sometimes under circumstances that are just uh, not wishing to have a child. Um, as I've written about in my Substack, um, as actually the first post on the day that Dobbs was announced, uh, you know, I had an abortion simply because at that point in my life at age, I think I was 32, maybe 33, 
I did not want to have a child. And that's enough. That is enough to assert the moral right not to, especially when we're talking about in almost all of those circumstances, very, uh, you know, early abortions early in the piece. Um, in my case, at about eight weeks, um, eight or 10 weeks, depending on, uh, you know, these things are often not easy to calculate precisely. But um, yeah, the extraordinary cruelty of anti-abortion, um, the anti-abortion movement is meant to be obscured by these completely false and spurious images of babies being um, aborted and executed in circumstances that simply don't happen. You also point out that many of the Republicans who support these bans also support the death penalty a day after signing the most extreme anti-abortion legislation in the United States into law in Alabama. Uh, again, back in 2019, Kay Ivey, Governor Kay Ivey declined to grant reprieve to a man sitting on death row. He was subsequently executed. Another man who has a cognitive disability awaits a similarly a, a terrible death at the time of mm-hmm. writing due to uh, be delivered via lethal injection. And you also mentioned the controversy around ectopic pregnancies, uh, generally agonizing, painful, almost never viable, and require urgent medical attention. And that can lead to uh, death by the, the mother dying as well as the child being stillborn. So to you, what explains this contradiction when it comes to life? What does it reveal about conservatism in the United States? when it wants small government, except when it comes to uh, that same government determining who lives and who dies. Why be anti-state intervention? Why be pro-life, except when it comes to the most important moral decision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we have to really hold on to the fact that this is not about protecting life. It is about controlling women. It is about controlling women's bodies and will also have a terrible impact on anyone who can get pregnant, including not just cis women, but also trans men, trans boys, cis girls, non-binary people, and intersex people who can also get pregnant in some cases. Um, so what we have is this um, you know, willingness to have pregnant people with ectopic pregnancies um, get into emergency situations and potentially die rather than perform the abortions that are medically necessary in all of these instances. Um, We're already seeing people being denied the um, medication uh, methotrexate, which is um, sometimes used to uh, uh, terminate an ectopic pregnancy, even when people need methotrexate for a huge variety of medical conditions. Um, including things like autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease. So we're seeing this refusal to terminate ectopic pregnancies until it is a life or death situation resulting in absolutely needless suffering. And in no situation is this going to result in preserving the life of the um, fetus that is simply not viable in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. You know, similarly, we're seeing uh, these Republicans that are incredibly supposedly pro-life, except as you point out, they're also in favor of the death penalty. 
they show absolutely no interest in, you know, the poor quality of food and water that is available to many children. They're not interested in improving the astonishingly high maternal mortality rates in this country, particularly for Black, Indigenous, um, and disproportionately poor women. And they're not interested in healthcare. They're not interested in police violence against uh, black and brown folks. They're not interested in life simpliciter. Again, they're interested in controlling the bodies of women because of our perceived moral violations of a patriarchal white supremacist order. You point to an important series of papers, legal scholars, Linda Greenhouse and Rava B. Siegel have shown that the contemporary anti-abortion movement in the United States had its roots in the triple A strategy spearheaded prior to the Roe v. Wade decision. The idea was to recruit Americans who had traditionally voted Democrat to the Republican Party by stressing the supposed moral threat of ACID, LSD, uh, amnesty for so-called draft dodgers from the Vietnam War, and finally abortion envisaged as a threat to the nuclear family. So Mm -hmm. is abortion simply and uh, is the anti-abortion movement is is that simply a political strategy i think so i mean this is much more an astroturf movement than a grassroots one so prior to um roughly uh 1972 um when this strategy was deliberately engineered the triple a strategy was designed to help nixon win um, over the Democratic frontrunner George McGovern, and this is of course a year prior to Roe, um, abortion was much less controversial amongst white evangelicals. Um, however, the triple A strategy was deliberately designed to get people to vote against their interests. Poor white folks, especially white evangelicals, had to be goaded into voting Republican rather than Democrat. Um, And so this strategy, you know, which was meant to help Nixon win, effectively moralized abortion and associated abortion, not with murder initially, um, that wasn't on the table, it was associated with a breakdown in the nuclear family. So these social issues were meant to paint McGovern as someone who was um, not good when it came to social morality, and who would be in effect encouraging drug takers, draft dodgers, and uh, feckless women uh, advancing their careers rather than having a husband, children, and the traditional, supposedly traditional uh, nuclear family in the white um, evangelical South. So uh, the strategy was incredibly effective in creating a sense that abortion was immoral in particular. where, yeah, this wasn't something that cropped up organically from religion. That's a common misconception. Um, This was a tiny piece of um, generally, uh, you know, very conservative Catholic lore that was extracted and used deliberately to manipulate white evangelicals. And you write that this is not to say that women are thereby perceived as subhuman creatures, non-human animals, or even mere vessels. Indeed, a woman's humanity is conceptually crucial to the whole enterprise. What she Mm -hmm. is supposed to give to men here is elsewhere is a distinctively 
human service. She is not just supposed to have the child in the style of The Handmaid's Tale as an exercise in human breeding. She is meant to care for the child afterward in a self-effacing manner and far in excess of the expectations placed on her male counterparts. But even if her humanity is not in doubt, it is perceived as owed to others. She is positioned not as a human being, but rather as a human giver of reproductive as well as emotional labor, material support, and sexual gratification insofar as her male partner wants these, and he, and he correspondingly is deemed entitled to take those goods from her as a matter of his birthright. So not only that, but to, you know, to the women are expected to provide all of these services mm-hmm. as non-waged labor. It's supposed to be done for free. And, and as you point out, it's an un- unlikely that men are brought up when discussing abortion, as it is to discuss wages when considering the social reproduction of human service and human giving that is expected from women is reproductive choice, the ultimate expression of women having or gaining control over their own labor, if you will, is being pro-choice mm-hmm taking control of your own labor and is that the culture change that the anti-abortion movement does not want to see women taking control over their own work wages and labor if you will yes absolutely i think that's a great way to put it i mean one way to conceptualize this is under white supremacist uh, heteropatriarchy women are perceived as owing so many forms of labor to white cis men in particular and also indirectly to the state so that includes reproductive labor it includes material labor it includes emotional labor and all of these forms of labor are something that feminists tell us and have long told us don't belong to anyone but the person whose labor it is Um, you know she ought to be truly free to extend her labor in any direction. Um, and that is something that you know is still a radical message and is still attracting an enormous amount of anti-feminist as well as racist backlash in this country among others. So I think viewing women as not so much you know, dehumanized by these laws and these policies, but rather perceived as bad humans, as bad human givers who should be giving our labor to cis men, particularly white cis men, and to the state. Um, That is something which these anti-choice laws are designed to police and enforce. And you write that we can therefore conceptualize the anti-abortion movement as one of many misogynistic enforcement mechanisms designed to compel women's caregiving. A woman is not to opt out of the Uh, role of motherhood that the AAA strategy implicitly underlined. When she is pregnant, her habits of consumption will be subject to vigorous cultural policing, notwithstanding the evidence that the occasional alcoholic beverage say is unlikely to be harmful. When she contemplates childbirth, so-called natural, that is vaginal unmedicated birth, will be lionized for far in excess of the evidence of its benefits, either for her or for the infant. And once she has an infant, she will be deemed obligated not only to care for the child with utter selfless devotion, but also to do so in a very specific manner. Consider the uh, pressure to breastfeed, for example, which massively outstrips the evidence or likely magnitude of its benefits in contexts where clean water is available for formula as an alternative. So is the targeting of pregnant women 
uh, with scrutiny. Is that socially acceptable? Is it morally acceptable to judge pregnant women as well as mothers of young children? And does that scrutiny increase if you are a person of uh, a person of color or poor or both? Because I think that's you know mm-hmm. everybody's always saying, and I, I disagree with this entirely, that there are. Uh, there's consumer activism, that there are individual acts that you can do in order to help out whatever the cause is. Is the individual act we can do, is it to not be not be socially accepting of this scrutiny of pregnant women and women who have infants? Yeah, I mean, I think it will help. It will be grossly insufficient, as you point out, to combat these enormous structural and systemic forms of injustice. But yeah, I think it is important to see the criminalizing and policing of pregnant bodies as on a continuum with policing and enforcing women's care in general. So, you know, the notion that she must uh, breastfeed, but also she must never breastfeed in public and she must breastfeed for, you know, whatever length of time is currently socially sanctioned, maybe 12 months, and then she must never breastfeed, a, a, you know, a drop of milk after that um, you know, after that date. Uh, the idea that there are these incredibly specific forms of care that uh, women must provide lest their children suffer these enormous harms is it's a great way to police and control women, not just their bodies, but also our minds, to have us totally preoccupied with, you know, how we raise our children, completely forgetting the fact that as I'm rapidly discovering as now a mother myself, children are actually very resilient and flexible and there are umpteen forms of raising children well that work for different people in different familial and social arrangements. And, you know, oftentimes it is, you know, quite fine to do things in a variety of different ways. But if you are a pluralist about it, if you let a thousand flowers bloom and also recognize that raising a child actually does take a village Um, you know it takes a lot of social and material support uh, all around someone and for that matter um, doesn't necessarily even have to involve let alone center on a cis woman um, then it becomes you know a much less convenient site for social control Uh, so yeah if you recognize the reality that there are lots of ways to do this and lots of people do it and they do it well in a variety of ways and family structures and non-familial structures, um, then yeah, that becomes a much less ripe basis for the misogyny that we're seeing um, being so prevalent today. Just a couple more questions for you, Kate. You write that in the case of abortion, it is heart-wrenchingly, it is is a heart-wrenchingly vulnerable fetus who might also grow up to be the next Einstein. In the case of bathroom bills, it is preyed upon cis girls or women. These notional victims then serve as a post hoc rationalization for their pre-existing desire to police the supposed moral offenders. So is the anti-abortion movement a movement supporting a morality police? Is morality policing the first step towards morality police? Is that the direction that this country is going with the ruling by the Supreme Court? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because one thing I really want people to think about and understand is the way that misogyny is here actually deeply in cahoots with transphobia and transmisogyny and with anti-trans legislation 
that is cropping up at a terrifying rate. Um, policing the bodies of cis women, you know, it has this way of inventing a notional fetus to be defensive of and awfully upset about. Similarly, in the case of policing trans women's bodies, uh, you see a similar invention of a supposed victim in the case of uh, trans women. Uh, people make up this idea that trans women are preying on cis women in restrooms where, you know, this has almost never happened. This is a non-problem socially. But similarly, you make up a notional victim. It, it, this allows you to moralize certain people's bodies and similarly expresses a sense of entitlement that women's bodies have to have certain body parts and they have to be functioning a particular way and producing a particular kind of entity um, and performing a particular kind of labor in order to be adequate, good women's, women's bodies. Um, so I think cis women and trans women are deeply in this together as we both have to resist this kind of moralizing about bodies and insistence on policing our bodies to a patriarchal, cisnormative, misogynistic end. And you point out that once a mother, she is always a mother, held disproportionately responsible for her emotional, material, and moral needs of those around her in ways that extend well beyond being overtasked with the care of her own children. So as it stands today, in your opinion, is the family, as it is defined and seen today, especially in the United States, a site of inequality? Is the anti-abortion movement interested in addressing threats to that inequality? Are they defending the family as a site of inequality? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to the triple A strategy of 1972, being desperate to uphold a certain, you know, supposedly traditional, though actually historically quite recent image of the nuclear family as moral and holy in a way that is just, again, very convenient for exploiting women's labor within that structure. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, these are bastions of cis male privilege in effect that conservatives have long been extremely interested in upholding for the obvious reasons that they're super beneficial for the prime intended beneficiaries of conservative moral and uh, social law, yeah, namely, you know, white, rich, cis men. You also point out that for those women who have much to gain by abiding by the norms of good womanhood vis-a-vis -vis the values of our white supremacist patriarchy, taking such an anti-abortion position is likely to be especially tempting. So white anti-abortion women, women doing so, being anti-abortion, for white privilege is, is being anti-abortion then seen as a way of class mobility? Yeah. So one way of looking at it is that misogyny tends to divide good women, quote unquote, good women by the lights of patriarchal norms and expectations from quote unquote, bad women, where the bad women, are, uh, women who are, you know, obtaining abortions among other things are not being sufficiently caring or, you know, doing things like um, taking something away from cis male privilege, like having, you know, certain kinds of um, uh, career paths, certain kinds of, um, you know, desires, plans, intentions. And so one way for white women in particular to really 
show that they're a quote unquote good woman is by themselves identifying with these norms and expectations within a white supremacist patriarchy and disavowing the kinds of desires that bad women have, like the desire to have an abortion and labeling that bad, immoral, evil, and saying that they're radically um, quote unquote uh, uh, pro-life, really meaning anti-choice in order to align themselves with these white supremacist and patriarchal norms. One last question for you, Kate. We have been speaking with Kate Mann, who wrote the article, Criminalizing Pregnant People, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. Her most recent book is entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. You can follow Kate on Twitter at Kate underscore man. Find out more about Kate at her website, katemann.net. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write that a particularly interesting, and, and you were already touching on this, if often missed parallel uh, to the anti-abortion movement is with the anti-trans movement and its fixation on policing the bodies of trans girls and women, including by legal means. Take bathroom bills, which uh, propose to restrict access to multi-user restrooms, locker rooms, and other historically gender-segregated facilities on the basis of the sex someone was assigned at birth. Bills of this nature have been considered in 16 states in the United States at the time of this writing, which was in 2020. And in 2017, one was passed in North Carolina, though it was subsequently struck down by federal courts. Such legislation would force trans people to use a restroom that does not match their gender identity, subjecting them to potential social humiliation, increased risk of physical attacks, and the prospect of gender gender dysphoria. A recent survey of almost 28,000 transgender people showed that, unsurprisingly, even the routine extra-legal policing of bathroom access has a significant negative impact. Nearly 60% had avoided using a public restroom at least once during the previous year due to a fear of being attacked or confronted. Fear of being attacked or confronted. Fear of intimidation. What you were just talking about, there being good women and bad women does the anti-abortion movement create a perfect setting for the emergence over the past 7, 10, 15 years of the far right and fascism in the United States? Is this a fertile environment? Is the anti-abortion movement a fertile environment for the emergence of fascism? Yeah, I think so. You know, for a long time, I was kind of unsure of what to think about this because, of course, uh, a fascist nation is one that's also a totalitarian one. And I wasn't sure how that, how to think of that in relation to America's weird and to me as an Australian kind of alien brand of libertarianism. Um, but I think we are really undoubtedly seeing the rise of Christian fascism and these kinds of forms of policing are now unapologetic, completely open, um, you know, the banning of books on critical, supposed critical race theory, which, by the way, good luck to anyone teaching critical race theory in the elementary school classroom. I, I teach a seminar on critical race theory, and, you know, it's, it's intended for philosophy grad students and law students. It's, you know, <laughs> the idea that we're teaching this in the, you know, to 10-year-olds is, is absurd, but the banning of books. And again, the astonishing... Um, legislation we're seeing against trans kids, where at the moment in Texas, we have multiple families being investigated by the state 
so-called child protective services um, where trans kids face being taken away from their parents by the state for receiving trans affirming care. You know, combine that with the rise of abortion bans, I think we are seeing the emergence of Christian fascism for sure. I'm glad that you call it Christian fascism because within the establishment media, there has been some talk of late, finally, about Christian nationalism. But that's mm -hmm. not, I mean, that does define it in a certain, a certain extent, but it doesn't go as far as defining it as Christian fascism does. So I really appreciate you calling it what it is, Christian fascism, mm -hmm. which is beyond Christian nationalism. Kate, thank you so much for being back on our show. It's been five years since the last time you were on. It's not going to be five years again in the future. I really appreciate you being back on and everybody should be subscribing to your Substack at kateman.substack.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck. And, and I just want to say I'm wishing you all the best for your health. I am just in such sympathy and solidarity as someone who is married to someone with Crohn's disease. I, um, yeah, I, my heart really goes out to you and I'm just wishing all the best for your upcoming surgery. Um, Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And give my best to your husband as well, because uh, I, I mean, rough stuff. Yeah, it's really rough stuff. And uh, I, I, whatever I'm going through right now, uh, it's probably nothing compared to what your husband has. And so I truly appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. And you know I'll be talking to you soon. That's great. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com. And we are back. We are back, uh, at least for a very, very brief uh, moment of time. We are back. I'm uh, still producer Sebastian here, still uh, broadcasting from my living room where. Uh, yeah, where we're at. Uh, actually, none of the cats, as promised, or rather, other than promised, none of the cats actually showed up to do anything. Uh, besides that cats showing up on uh, radio is not quite as, uh, you know, interesting as, you know, cats showing up on, uh, on the video. Um, yeah. And so... This concludes the first, um, this concludes the first of, uh, This Is Hell's holiday episodes. Um, well, and we have, uh, oh, we have actually one answer already. Let's see, maybe we have some. We have one answer, one reply to this week's question from Hell, which is, Now that Chuck's away, what's the thing about him that annoys you the most? What's uh, the thing that annoys you the most about Chuck? Tell us, now that he's away, we won't tell him. And he cannot see your answers, no. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's easy to find things from somebody but this is hell so what are you going to do about it uh, the favorite answer to uh, this week's reply to the question from hell our favorite answer uh, can choose whichever piece of merchandise from the this is hell merch shop uh, they want 
you can find that at thisishow.com and click on support and uh, see in what way you can support this year's show um, yeah uh, and uh, the first reply we got is from Ray O who says the thing that annoys him most about Chuck is that he's away dear Ray dear everybody else who is annoyed that Chuck is away you know parasocial relationships are dangerous especially when they veer into the codependent stati- uh, uh, state of things codependent well we are dependent on you the listener to lend us your ears and also open your wallets to give us your much needed monetary support um, but also the listener you are dependent on us telling you things that you want to hear I, I guess um, if you want to hear the things that make this place your hell uh, but as you know uh, shared suffering is half the suffering um, therefore that's why we're here right this is hell, and we share our suffering. Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, so, let me sign off. This has been Producer Sebastian producing this Monday, Boxing Day, Kapow Kapow episode of This is Hell. You have a good cr- uh, post-holiday week, and uh, yeah, thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening. Yeah, as we said, this is hell. And, uh, and goodbye. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.